if you say so. <clears throat> yeah, it's okay. Good, thank you. <clears throat> uh, so, as you heard in the introduction, uh, I uh, practiced Zen for many years. I was um, an institutionalized Zen person, you know, committed, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and then I, I let myself out, finally. Um, I think I needed to spend some time crying. And um, um, so I think of my practice as sort of following the trail of the tears sometimes. Uh, after I left the Zen Center, I started doing Vipassana practice. Um, it's first of all in California with Jack Cornfield, And then um, Eventually, um, I did a, th a three-month course in Barry um, with uh, uh, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon, uh, Michelle McDonald were my um, teachers there. Did I say 87? Yeah, anyway, 87. And um, so I've continued to do odds and ends of things over the years. Um, I was remembering my Vipassana practice because, um, and Joseph because uh, uh, many years later, I forget when it was, maybe around 2000, we were at together at a Buddhist teachers conference at Spirit Rock in California. And um, they had set up for us to have a home group. Do you know home group? Anyway, we were assigned to little groups um, with other visit, with other uh, others of the teachers so we would get to know people we might not otherwise talk with. So um, Joseph was sitting to my right. He had on some, I think, sort of olive green corduroy pants and a nice checked or striped shirt and a little um, sweater vest or something like this. Um, and I was dressed like this. <laughs> I had on my black, my white shirt and my black. And across the circle from us was um, Gaelic Rinpoche and then Sogyal Rinpoche and then Zogni Rinpoche. They had all. They all had on their yellow gold outfits and their maroon, um, their maroon robes. And our group also had Shinzen Yang, and then there was a Tibetan teacher of some kind, um, but a you know a Western Tibetan teacher. So we all went around very briefly, and we introduced ourselves and um, uh, briefly and where we were practicing and sitting. And, uh, and then when that was finished, um, Zogni Rinpoche looked across the circle at me. And he said, so, Ed, what's the difference between you and Joseph? <laughs> and I had this sinking feeling like, oh, okay, I'm supposed to, you know, in, in 25 words or less, sum up the difference between Zen and Vipassana. You know? And I'm, I'm just, I'm really don't think of myself as being very good at this. And, you know, and after all these years of practice, one wonders, like, well, what have I got to show for it anyway, you know? And um, so I said, well, you know, our hair is shorter than theirs. And, um, you know, we have outfits, and they just wear regular clothes. <laughs> <laughs> and Zogni Rinpoche looked at me and he said, no, Ed, I'm serious. And, um, you know, to this day, I'm still wishing I had said, and I guess that's the difference between you and me. <laughs> 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 
But instead I went into sort of shame mode, oh my gosh, I've displeased the Tibetan teacher and uh-oh, uh, woe is me. And I, 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 don't, I don't know what to say. You know, I have a lot of stories and things, but I'm, it's hard to sum things up, you know, intellectually or something. Um, but um, sometime after that, uh, Gil Fronsdale, some of you may know, he's a Vipassana teacher on the peninsula in San Francisco, and they have something like CIMC um, or IMC or something. Maybe it's just IMC, Insight Meditation Center. It's on the peninsula. It's Menlo Park or Redwood City. And I was at Zen Center when Gil first came there, and I opened the door and welcomed him to the Zen Center. And then he was the one in 1987. He said, I'm going to the intensive in Barry this fall. Why don't you come with me? So I said, oh, okay. Why don't I come with you? <laughs> so um, uh, Gil was first of a, a Zen teacher, and then he studied Vipassana and became a Vipassana teacher. So mostly he's a Vipassana teacher now. And coincidentally, my ex-wife is now studying with him. She lives in France, and she just, you know, she can study with him online and, you know, Skyping and uh, streaming <coughs> online things, and she doesn't have to be in California. So it's pretty amazing. Um, so Gil told me this story. You know, it, he said, um, you know, he had practiced one year. He went to first to Japan and practiced for a month or two or three, and then he went to Southeast Asia. He practiced first Zen in Japan, and then Vipassana in Southeast Asia. Uh, and he said, everybody likes to rake. In Japan, they say, when you rake, just rake. And in Southeast Asia, they say, when you rake, watch your mind. So in Japan, they're raking away and the dust is coming up. And you only rake where other people are raking. You don't go off by yourself. You have to rake with the group. And... Um, <laughs> Even if there's no leaves there, you rake with everybody else. Um, and then in Southeast Asia, they said, he said, often they just stand there. <laughs> I told this to one of my Zen mentors, and he said, oh, I guess they think their minds are up here. <laughs> because, of course, in, whether it's Buddhism or, I mean, Zen or Vipassana, there's some sense at some point that you know, everything is consciousness or everything is mind. That's a whole school of Buddhism, mind only. It's all mind. And uh, there's a certainly a famous saying in Soto Zen, mind itself is Buddha. Um, and I'll come back to this a little bit later. You know, so. <clears throat> but I, I think about this a lot, you know, because I since I work in the kitchen and I... I in my relationship with my partner now, um, I do all the grocery shopping, all the cooking, um, and then um, my partner Margot cleans up. And she feels very um, happy to clean up because she gets good food to eat. You know, so it works. You know. um, so I'm still um, cooking, uh, but you know, mostly just at home. I don't, um, I don't have a restaurant or anything, and I'm. Um, once in a while, I I can I'm willing to teach classes, but only once in a while. It's it's gotten way harder, you know. It seems like uh, years ago, uh, I used to teach a class, and then people would listen to what I had to say, and now they just talk to each other. Um, and I, I I I hit bells and things, and I try to get them to be quiet, and I say, "This is a class, and for it to be a class, you be quiet, and I talk," and they just go on talking. They just you know, so. 
And I found out recently, I was doing a book reading. I have a new book, by the way, that uh, you know wasn't mentioned by Dawn. Uh, my new book is called By All Means, and it's a story of how I met my stuffed piggy named Ponce and how we became close friends and so on. So um, it's not, it's a, and I call it a Zen cautionary tale, but that's a whole different story. But anyway, um, I was giving this reading, and after the reading, somebody said, so are you still teaching cooking classes? And I said, no. And I said, it's too hard. You know, people don't seem to really want to learn to cook. They want to visit with their friends. And he said, oh, that's too bad. My wife and I were at your workshop 20 years ago, and it changed our lives. <laughs> well, you know, I said, well, bless your hearts. Thank you for sharing that with me. Then when they were coming through the line, the wife said, I can't believe people would talk. You know, 20 years ago when we came to your class, you were hopping mad. Just hopping, hopping mad. And we wouldn't have dared to talk. <laughs> so I guess I've become more friendly. <laughs> over all the years and so now um, I can't control the room you know particularly so I thought I'd start tonight um, talking a little bit about um, my sense of sensibility around cooking practice and um, and I you know I don't mean to I'm you know I'm when I say you know what I what I what makes sense to me I'm not trying to say that other practices aren't great or, you know, useful or important, you know, and you may have practices in your life that are different than mine and, you know, great, you know, wonderful. So I'm going to, but I'm going to be telling you what works for me and what's been important for me and then you can see if it makes any sense to you. I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, both uh, Zen Master Dogen and my uh, Zen teacher Suzuki Roshi said, um, when you have, when you come across a good teaching, follow it. But keep a, a space in your heart. Keep an, keep space to hear some new teaching. Always be ready to hear a new teaching that might be useful for you. Even though you have something that's quite good. So I'm talking now so I get to tell you. And maybe you'll leave a little space to hear. Um, so um, when I was first at Tassajara and I, I had been invited to be the um, cook there, um, I'd been a cook for two months, so I had more experience than most everybody else, I guess. <laughs> um, and I had no idea how um, difficult it would be. Um, so I agreed to do it. Um, and it was, it was pretty overwhelming. Um, we were cooking for, uh, initially for about 45 guests, and then we were cooking for about 45 students. Um, and at that time, we were actually cooking meat for our guests because we thought they were, were used to that. And this is 67, I guess, 60s, 1967. And uh, bless you. Um, so one of the things that happened was when I got there, um, the people who were living there, they told me, when we cook, we don't use salt. And I said, well, why don't you use salt? And they said, it's bad for you. Salt is bad for you, you know. I said, no, I didn't know. Well, it's bad for you. So we don't use it. So I, I, I don't, I'm not really very assertive. So I said, okay. And then uh, a few days later, I went to see Suzuki Roshi. And I said, 
they tell me in the kitchen uh, that salt is bad for you and I shouldn't use it. What should I do? And he said, you're the head cook. You do what you want. <laughs> and then, and then he um, gave me some advice and he said, um, uh, but when you're in the kitchen, when you wash the rice, wash the rice. You know, just like when you rake, just rake. When you wash the rice, wash the rice. When you stir the soup, stir the soup. When you cut the carrots, cut the carrots. So I started doing this. And it's very interesting because it's, as far as I can tell, this is mindfulness. But it's not like when you work in the kitchen, be mindful. It's when you work in the kitchen, do what you're doing. Um, and I sometimes wonder, like, how do you, what is the mindfulness that's separate from the doing that you could, you should also be doing? So, <laughs> you know, while you're washing the rice, be mindful. And what would that mean? You know, so I find this very useful when you wash the rice. And it's, it's, this is the Zen spirit, you know, throw yourself into what you're doing. And it's an energy practice, you know, and more than, more emphasis on energy practice than on mindfulness practice per se. Uh, so I practiced that and um, I would focus on my hands and my energy and my body and then what were my feet doing and, and I, would, I would notice when I just dropped the knife and it went bonk and I would, then I tried to learn to just put it down and not toss it down and you know, it was endless, you know. Um, and it was so interesting to uh, study how to do something how to do something and how to do something, you know, with ease and with joy and with, with vitality, you know, which is different than how to do something because you're supposed to do it or it's a chore or you need to do it, but with some grace, with some enthusiasm. Um, and so I studied, you know, like how do you hold the knife and where do you hold the knife and then how, what's the, a good way to cut? And I, now I still teach this. But I don't try to teach people how to do it right. I try to teach people you could try something else besides what you're doing and see which one works better. You know, what works for you. So you're studying uh, all the time what works, what doesn't work, what's easy, you know, what's awkward. And when you go to do something easy, sometimes to start with it's awkward. But after you do it for a while, it's awkward because it's unfamiliar not because it's actually hard or not easy. Does, I don't know if this makes sense to you, but it's very interesting, you know, that you can learn to do things uh, easy, the easy way. You know? So I studied how to do things easy. And part of the reason, of course, to study how to do things easy is because we were always understaffed and we're cooking for 90 people a day, uh, three different meals, I mean six different meals, you know, three meals, two, two, two menus um, so we were and somebody a few years ago they said Ed were you ever a guest cook at Tassajara now there's a Tenzo an assistant Tenzo the head of the Zendo crew the head there's three or there's four guest cooks and I said yeah when yeah but I don't think you are going to understand but when I was a guest cook I was also the Tenzo the head cook the baker um one of the two guest cooks, and also head of the um, prep for the Zendo meals, the, uh, you know, for the for the students. Um, and you know, you this. It's because I'm fast, and because I figured out how to. 
I kept studying how to do things effectively and easily. Um, anyway, after a while, um, I noticed that not everybody in the room with me was doing this. It became more and more obvious that people didn't come to work on time. They took long bathroom breaks. Sometimes people would go to the bathroom and then it was 20, 30 minutes before they came back. And, um, and then I noticed also that they talked. And when they talked, their hands stopped. They didn't talk and keep working. Some people can talk and keep working, but not this group. So then I went to see Suzuki Roshi again. And I said, Roshi, you know, I'm, I, I want your advice. What do I do um, you know, the, with the, these people I'm working with? You know, I'm really trying to follow your teaching. When you wash the rice, wash the rice. When you stir the soup, stir the soup. When you cut the carrots, cut the carrots. So I'm really working on this. And the people I'm working with, they get to work late, they take long bathroom breaks, they talk a lot, and when they talk, you know, and what the, the subject is, you know, here, you might think, you know, you talk about the movies or television or something, and, oh, did you see? And I don't even know, because I'm, I'm not going to the movies. Um, but detection or something is on? Defection? I don't know, so there's some new movie. And anyway, I don't know what they are. And you say, did you see that? And then, but at Tassahara, it was... You know, I had a dream last night. Because <laughs> we're, we're way out, you know, it's 14 miles on a dirt road. It's the end of the road. You don't go out to the movies. You don't go out anywhere. You're, you're, you're there. And it's hot in the summer and cold in the winter. There's a Zen story about that. I'll come back to my other story in a minute. But, you know, the, uh, a monk went back to visit his old teacher and, and the monk asked his teacher, what do you think about people who leave the monastery and don't come back? And the teacher said, they're ungrateful asses. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, the, stu so the student said, well, what about the students who leave and, and return? And he said, they remember the benefits. And the student says, um, it's kind of like parentheses, tell me again, what are the benefits? Uh, and the teacher said, heat in the summer and cold in the winter. <laughs> you all here in New England, I hear, have been struggling with this. It's been a long winter, you know, but this is actually called a blessing. <laughs> or is there some way to experience it as a blessing, you know, rather than, oh my gosh, this is something I have to put up with. So if you're, in, in theory, when, you're, when you do practice, then things become blessings rather than just something you put up with, you know. Um, <clears throat> and when you can't feel heat in the summer and cold in the winter, then you're probably close to dying, you know. <laughs> so it's a blessing. Um, anyway, um, so I asked Suzuki Rishi, what do I do? You know, I, what do I do with these people to, so that I can get them to practice? the way they should <laughs> right and he said um, and I thought he was understanding me I thought he got it that you know I understand you can't get good help these days <laughs> but he paused for a moment and then he said if you want to see virtue you'll need to have a calm mind <laughs> and I thought right away I thought that is not what I asked you <laughs> <laughs> I thought to myself, <laughs> that, oh my gosh, I have a lot to practice. I have a lot to learn here um, to begin to see virtue in my fellow workers. And he said, if you want to see virtue, 
And that hadn't occurred to me. You know, what had occurred to me is how do I get compliance? You know, not how do I see virtue in others. So I started practicing that, how to see virtue in the people I'm working with who were who they were and not me. And they didn't have my idea of what to be doing in the kitchen. <clears throat> One of the highlights of that time was um, I asked somebody to get 18 cups of small white beans. And about 20 minutes later, I realized I hadn't seen him. And I went out to the storeroom and there he was in the back of the storeroom and he was picking up each bean and making sure that it was a white bean and not a stone. So he was picking out the white beans one by one. And after I got over, you know, then I attempted to have a calm mind. Actually, I wasn't trying to calm my mind first. I thought if I see virtue, I could do it the other way around. If you want to have a calm mind, then you need to see virtue. <laughs> so I thought, well, he is being thorough, isn't he? <laughs> And then I got him to be putting the white beans on a, uh, a black pan and, you know, a cup at a time or so, and then you can look pretty quickly and see if there's a stone. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been working on this since then, too. Um, it's so important to study how to, how to see virtue which is both your own virtue and other people's virtue and the virtue of, of in food. <laughs> and there's um, other kinds of words for virtue, um, but this is a pretty good word. <clears throat> uh, sometime later, um, in spite of my efforts of seeing to see virtue, um, the director came to me one day and he said, Ed, we want to have a, a meeting uh, of you and the kitchen crew. Would you be willing to come to the meeting? And, and it turned out that the, the kitchen people working with me were very unhappy with me. Uh, so we had, and we had this meeting and the director said, you know, could you please um, tell Ed what's going on and why we're having this meeting? And, um, and then they said, um, one woman said, well, we don't like the way you treat us. Uh, you treat us just the way you do the bread. And then she thought about it for a moment. She said, no, you treat the bread with a lot of love and respect. That's not the way you treat us. <laughs> uh, food, in this sense, I think of sometimes as like a transitional object. You know transitional objects in therapy? You can, you can and I wasn't very, um, you know, talkative or friendly in those days, so, but I could be friendly with the bread you know, and loving with the bread, it's safe. You know, it's not, you're not as vulnerable to be loving with the bread. It doesn't, and that it doesn't criticize you, say you're not, you're still not loving me right, the way I want to be loved, and so on, you know. So um, you get this chance to practice. So I practiced with food for years, how to have a warm-hearted relationship. And it, then it, and then I, until finally I started, you know, studying this with people. Um, but this was sort of the beginning of it in an awkward way because um, uh, then somebody else said, you know, you, you, um, you treat us just like another tool in your hand. You don't understand that we're sentient and that we have taste and that we can know we have aesthetics and we can know what we like and what we don't like. 
and you you make all the decisions you decide how everything is going to be seasoned and how it's all supposed to be and you don't let us do that so um, after a while finally the director said so um, so Ed would you like to change the way you work or would you like another job <laughs> so I said well okay I, I can change but um, I don't I have no idea how to do this uh, and he said, well, why don't we try it out for a while? Um, and I went outside. I was pretty devastated to hear how much other people found me to be painful to be around and how little I understood about how to work with people and how to be with people and how to appreciate people and how to see the virtue uh, of their, their sense, sincerity, their good-heartedness, their effort. Um, and and how to and how to work with all of that. Um, and I sat down on the steps outside the kitchen there, and I started crying. And then uh, one of the senior students came along. It was a woman named Trudy Dixon. And Trudy was actually the main editor of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Many of you may know. And uh, and Trudy um, stopped to talk to me. Uh, and uh, Trudy had cancer. She wasn't going to uh, live much longer. Uh, and there she was at Tassara practicing Zen. Uh, and she stopped and she asked me what was happening. And I told her that we'd had this meeting. And it turned out that I didn't know how to work with people and how to appreciate or be grateful for others. Uh, and she said, uh, Ed, I have faith in you. Uh, and I said, I, I don't, I can't, I, I don't, I don't see why you would. Um, and I started crying again, and she said, I have faith in you. She just repeated it. Um, and that um, encouraged me a great deal, that somebody could see my virtue. Uh, and that I could go ahead and um, make some effort and aim my focus and intention on, on how to see and uh, virtue in others, be grateful for others, see people's good-heartedness. So I started working on that even more seriously, and um, you know, reorganized the kitchen so that we took turns being in charge of meals and various things. <clears throat> so I want to. Um, uh, shift this now. Uh, you know, I mentioned writing this new book. So this is the first book I did where I just sat down and the first chapter came out because a friend of mine said he wanted to illustrate a book of mine and I said, about what? A book about what? And he said, oh, oh anything. <laughs> Little did he know it was going to be about me and my stuffed piggy hand puppet. <laughs> so... <laughs> I wrote the first chapter, and then he didn't do any drawings, and I wrote this, and then every the first chapter just popped out, and then every and then it just kept popping out, for over the course of three or four months, and I've never written anything like that before that just popped out, and I edited a little bit, and then a friend of mine said, "Oh well, I'll publish that for you. I'll print that for you." It turned out his saying he printed for me meant I would pay for the, pay for the printing, <laughs> but it's, it looks like it's working out. But the, why I'm bringing up this book is because in the course of this book, I was remembering, you know, a little bit of background to this is what I've over the years found to be the most painful 
experience that I have in the in my life, the most painful thing is that other people don't seem to realize what a sweet, good-hearted person I am. And they're busy noticing that I'm taking long bathroom breaks and, you know, getting to work late and not talking the right way and, you know, you don't know how to communicate and, you know, and it's and it goes on and on. And some people are really, really good at this. You know, um, judge, blame, defend. I'm feeling sad today. Well, it's not my fault, you know, they say. <laughs> I was looking for a little empathy, not trying to decide whose fault it was. Um, so I found this very painful, you know, that people don't seem to recognize me or see me. Um, and then, I, so when I was working on my book, I, I remembered when I was a little boy, my parents, I'm, my name is Edward Brown, you know, my parents would sometimes call me Eddie Bear. And Eddie Bear was a really obviously lovable, completely adorable person. You couldn't be a more lovable person than Eddie Bear. And, you know, it's like even though you don't have it written down, but it's, but you know, like that's not even capitalized. It's not that formal. It's close. And the two words are just together, Eddie Bear. It's just one word. It's not. And then, um, so completely lovable, completely closer than close. And then, of course, there's be times in the Edward Bear. You're making too much noise. You need to be more quiet. Your room is a mess. You need to clean it up. So what happened to Eddie Bear? <laughs> Where did he go? You know? And this has happened to all of us. You know, most of us, at some point in our life, we were truly loved. You know, like my, my daughter, when her, her, my granddaughter was born, my daughter called me up and she said, Dad, I never would have known, if I hadn't had a baby, I never would have known how much you could love somebody. I've never loved anybody like this in my life. Um, and of course, about six months later, she calls me up and she says, Dad, how come nobody tells you how difficult this is? <laughs> so we're, this is, um, this is very interesting, but, you know, we all have a kind of what you could call spirit, where, where on one hand, you know, we have a body, but on the other hand, we're spirit, we're mind, we're consciousness itself. In consciousness itself, um, we, we say in the Heart Sutra, you know, is not tainted, is not pure does not appear, does not disappear. You know, does not increase, does not decrease. Your performance can get high or low ratings, but you yourself, you're a beautiful spirit. You have a good heart. You're, you know, you're, you're spirit. You're, you know, you're not, you're not, and then, but, but does anybody see it? And do you notice, you know, I'm a good person. I'm, things don't always come out the way I want, but I'm a good-hearted person. Basically, I am good-hearted. I'm a sincere person. I do things. I, I do the best I can. But if you're not careful, then you think um, you don't. You you do all the things you're supposed to be doing, and you get all the approval ratings you know you can. But it doesn't reflect on you yourself. Still, you yourself. On, I'm still not doing good enough. This is you know in our culture, the hustle for worthiness, and you. And you're only as good as your last meal. <laughs> and the old Chinese saying is, before the food comes, tell the cook it has to be better tomorrow. Otherwise they get lazy and arrogant. And there's something like this in our culture too. You know, you better keep up your good performance because that's as good as, you, you're only as good as your last one.
So this is very interesting, you know, to, and one aspect of meditation that we don't talk about so much is not just how to meditate, but it's why I mentioned to you, let things come home to your heart. Let your heart go out and abide in things. Begin to study how to have this connection with your heart, with your inner being, rather than, um, I'm going to aim to do it the way you're supposed to. I'm going to, I'm going to do it right. I'm going to get, I'm going to get better approval rating. You know, I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'll have a better performance. So, you know, we confuse in this sense, I think, you know, what is uh, spiritual, which you could look at as vertical, and what is relating in the horizontal world, which is, uh, you know, uh, you know, what we do here. And uh, Suzuki Roshi in this regard used to say, Zen is to settle the self on the self. And the Japanese, for the Japanese, it's the self he's talking about is, you know, three fingers, two inches below your navel, the hara, which in the Western world is what we call the second chakra. And second chakra is a water chakra. It's emotions, it's the emotional center. Uh, and it's also, uh, it turns out when you, as you sort out all of those old emotions, which are from childhood, and clear the clear out the basement, so to speak, with your meditation practice and others, other practices, perhaps. Um, I've done a number of different therapies. <laughs> At some point, it's like, oh my gosh, you never get to the bottom of it. Um, give it a rest. But anyway, um, <clears throat> uh, the second chakra then is also what the center for what's called your felt sense. And then, uh, what am I going to do? And instead of going to your head and your head saying, you should, you need to, you have to, you should, you know, improve your performance, get a better grade, you know, get better grades, uh, you know, uh, work on your image, um, you know, put on a better show for people, um, you know, get their, um, their recognition, their approval. Um, and instead of that, you go to your felt sense, well, what do you feel like doing? And at some point, your life can be informed by you know, more from inside rather than from your head. So I think of, you know, I'm not sure how much, whether it's Zen or it's Vipassana, this has gotten more and more important to me. And then, you know, as I've gotten older, that my life is coming from inside and what's inside is connecting with what's outside and what's outside is connecting with what's inside. And this is what, you know, um, like Joseph Campbell used to call, follow your bliss. You know, what's what's inside? And we're we're all the time struggling with this, and our culture keeps saying, when you do something which maybe was following your bliss, but you're and people say, what were you thinking? Why weren't you thinking? You never should have done that. Well, I was listening to my muse. <laughs> Not good enough. <laughs> so it's very curious. Um, this business, and I so I think it's awfully important to um, you know study how to have a life inside and begin to notice your own virtue inside, your own blessedness, your own sacredness. We're all spirits, and the spirit or the you know mind itself, consciousness itself, and you can you know doesn't come, doesn't go, doesn't appear, doesn't disappear, uh, is not tainted, is not pure, you know. and. Um, you know, one way to think about it is, you know, if somebody says, who are you? 
and you say, I'm a man, or I'm a woman, or I'm 16, or I'm 67, uh, you know, you come up with your age, your gender, um, you know, I'm sick, I'm well, um, I'm an accountant, or, you know, I'm a baseball player, or, you know, what you, you come up with all these, is that you? Is that your Eddie Bear? That's just, you know, some tentative description. That's some, from the outside. That's not you yourself in your own heart of hearts. You know, what Jack used to call, you know, sit in the center of your life. Sit, you know, in the center of your heart. So, and, and then in the center, you know, there's someone, there's someone who can never, you, you yourself can never be an object you can never be 16. That's tentatively, yeah, you're 16, you're 18, you're a man, you're a woman, but in your, as yourself, you cannot be objectified. You were never an object. You were consciousness itself. And so um, you don't want to get obviously too caught up in all of these tentative designations and, and I'm savvy, I'm skillful, I'm competent. Uh-huh. Well, tentatively speaking. You know. um, and then, but then, does that translate to, I'm a good-hearted person? Just, it doesn't translate. It doesn't, so in other words, you, you can never, so one way to look at it is, when you're, when you're young, uh, you know, you feel whatever's in the air, it's love. And even, at, even when we're young, we understand you cannot earn love. You can't, you know, through your performance, get love. You can get approval. You can get recognition. <laughs> but you don't get love from your performance. You know, when you, when you do uh, something your parents approve of, then they say, um, uh, what a good boy. What a good girl. But that's not love. That's, that's a, and, and we use this as parents because it works. <laughs> and we train our kids to look for approval. And we hope that in the process of all this, they don't forget that we love them. <laughs> and once in a while, we, we remember and remind ourselves and, and the others, you know, well, there's actually love here. So um, in this sense, uh, you know, it's love that you can feel in your heart and any time, you know, any time you can, it's not about uh, what you said or didn't say, um, you know, the mistake you made or didn't make or your performance that was good or not so good and uh, what the critics thought of you and boy, there's a lot of critics out there, not just the ones who write in the papers, you know. And love has, has nothing to do with your performance. So, tell you what, why don't we just go ahead and feel love for a couple minutes. I'd like all of you to, well, just tune to love. You tune to love and let love come through you. And uh, through your heart, through your body, through your hands, your legs, your feet, your head. And we'll just tune to love and see what happens in the room.
So pretty nice, uh, pretty good. Um, let's let's just go a little deeper with it uh, for another half a minute. Thank you. So, um, you know, obviously we all have different experiences, but, you know, uh, the usual, often the words to describe this are, you know, a tenderness, a gentleness, soft, uh, expansive. Uh, and uh, for me, after I said, uh, let's go deeper for half a minute, I started uh, to feel a kind of glowing. You know, it's subtle. Um, but we all have this capacity to receive love. Love is, love is not something you earn. It's something you can practice receiving. And there's various ways to practice receiving it, but then the more you receive love and then you let it into your heart, then the more you can extend your heart uh, to others. And you're not grading them or assessing their performance. You're uh, sharing your heart with them, your love with them. Um, and while we were doing that also, I was reminded of another poem, so I'll share another poem with you if I may. It's a poem, I think it's Antonio Machado, who's a Spanish poet, and it's the translation, more or less, by Robert Bly. <clears throat> Uh, he uses an expression that the poem is last night as I was sleeping. Um, I dreamt, and then he says, oh, marvelous error. In other words, this is not the kind of usual dream you have. <laughs> so he repeats this line, oh, marvelous error. And, um, you know, and it's not based on, and it's an error because it's not based on the usual views of what you need to do to have this kind of experience that he talks about. So the poem is like this. Last night, as I was sleeping, I dreamt a marvelous error. There was a spring here in my heart. And I said to myself, O oh, water, along which secret aqueducts are you flowing, water of a new life that I have never drunk. Last night, as I was dreaming, as I slept, I dreamt, oh marvelous error, there was a spring in my heart. And I said, along which water, oh water, along which secret aqueducts are you coming to me, water of a new life that I have never drunk. Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt, oh marvelous error, there was a beehive here in my heart, and the golden bees we're making white comb and sweet honey out of my old failures. 
Last night as I was uh, sleeping, I dreamt a marvelous error. There was a fiery sun here in my heart. Fiery because it brought warmth as though from a hearth. Sun because it brought light and tears to my eyes. Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt a marvelous error. There was a divine presence here in my heart. You can see it doesn't depend on how well you just meditated. <laughs> uh, and it's just a kind of mistake you might stumble upon now and again. <laughs> In a certain sense, you know, from a certain point of view. Uh, you got away from your devotion to doing what you're supposed to and taking care of all your responsibilities and, you know, etc. Uh, so, uh, what I've um, come to in cooking, you know, is to, it's actually interesting whether it's cooking or whatever it is, you know, to look for virtue, to, and virtue is like uh, feeling uh, the spirit uh, of someone, feeling someone's spirit. Uh, and it's very curious, you know, because spirit manifests as, uh, or, you know, we would say in Zen, you know, mind is radishes, carrots, you know, beets, celery, and mind is not. Mind is not these things. But uh, spirit, you know, manifests as things. Spirit manifests as each of us. <clears throat> and um, somehow we, you know, get busy assessing and, and um, diagnosing measuring, assessing, and then how do you treat these things, what do you do with them to get them to, you know, reflect well on you and to maximize your benefit and um, whatever, you know. I wonder sometimes uh, if maybe I'm just too old to be part of this world, you know, that's so busy with, you know, image and the internet and then how many followers do you have on Twitter? Um, I don't. Sorry, I don't do Twitter. I don't do Facebook. I don't. I don't do many messaging. I don't do texting. I'm sorry. <laughs> I have no followers. <laughs> um, but um, you know, for instance, it reminds me. A friend of mine studied at the CIA. Um, the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York, and he said um, one of the teachers used to come around and say, Chef, what are you making? And then you might say, Carrot soup. And then the chef would say, And what should carrot soup taste like? And then you were supposed to say, Carrots. Because if you're not careful, you, you put in... Um, pineapple or orange and some ginger and some green chilies um, and some basil 
and isn't it delicious? And wait a minute, is it carrots or winter squash or yams? And you can't tell. So sometimes we get captivated by what something tastes like and we forget about what's, what is the spirit of this. How can we bring out the best of something? And how can we um, make carrot even more like carrot? And you taste something carefully enough to know what the essence of carrot is, what the spirit of carrot is. And you know, carrots aren't trying to be radishes. Radishes aren't trying to be eggplants. They're happy being who and what they are. And you see if you can bring out the best. And each of us, you know, we're individuals. And we have presence of mind. We have heart. And we have, in another view, uh, you know, an aesthetic. We have personal aesthetic. And part of what we're actually working on in meditation is to know what your aesthetic is and to refine your aesthetic, to cultivate and develop your aesthetic so you know in your, with your felt sense what you want, where you're going, what's up for your life. And people suffer. Uh, we suffer when we don't do that. And we wonder, my life feels empty. Well, are you following, you know? And we get ourselves, my partner now, um, uh, you know, says that when she got married, at one point she had a, a, a son who was three or four years old that she'd had without having a husband. And then people said, you should get married. And then she knew she shouldn't to this particular man, but she went ahead. And the day she was going to get married, she stepped in dog shit. <laughs> and she knew, I'm making a mistake. <laughs> it's either I'm making a mistake or, my gosh, there's going to be obstacles to overcome. <laughs> so... Um, she says, oh, that was the best mistake I ever made. But it took years, you know. And he went through her parents' um, her parents' money and, uh, you know, left her in bankruptcy. And, and you know, it's, you know, I don't even know all the story, but uh, he's still referred to in my household as the a-hole, you know. <laughs> I, I still don't know his name. <laughs> And towards the end, they were having a, you know, a counseling session together with a counselor that he had picked, you know, a kind of mediation. And afterwards, the, the um, counselor person said, I need to talk to you for a minute, <laughs> to my partner. And, you know, he had left the room and she said, get out. Get out as soon as you can and don't look back and whatever it takes. You know, this is not a good person that, you're, that you got married to. And she'd known it. She knew in her, you know, her felt sense. So, and it's not easy to honor your felt sense. What do you feel? And to, and to start to know what you feel and what's in your heart. And, you know, people say, what, do you, what should you do to save the world? Well, you know, there's no answer from the head. But what else is there to do in our life but start to know your own heart and what your heart longs for and what you, you know, your presence is, you can share your presence, your heart, your gifts with others. Whether it's, you know, I mean, I, I had this great experience the other day. Um, a couple came over to my house 
and they're friends of another of, you know, old old Zen friend of mine, David Chadwick. And they came over to my house because they wanted to get married. So we started talking, and at one point, I, I showed them pictures of my uh, daughter, son-in-law, and my granddaughter. And she said, oh, there's Lycan and Danica! You know, my, my daughter's name and my granddaughter's name. And it turns out she's my granddaughter's teacher <laughs> in, in nursery school. And she says, I just love them, you know. And she says, this is the best job in the world. I just love teaching school. I love working with kids. So it's so important, you know, what you know to find these things that you love. Um, and you know, some people write or you know sculpt or play music, and uh, you know, but there's also cooking and gardening, and you know, and there's um, giving your attention to your family, to your friends, to your kids, to your parents. It's the gift of your presence. And without uh, assessing them, without diagnosing them, without trying to fix them, and more in the mode of receiving and seeing, finding a way to see virtue. And then, of course, what isn't talked about so much in Buddhism is, you know that wonderful story about the Buddha, and um, he's attacked by the armies of Mara. And in the pictures, you know, they, they're, they're shooting arrows at him and throwing spears, and somehow, they stop at a certain distance from Buddha. He had really good understanding of what we call nowadays boundaries. <laughs> and he had very clear boundaries. Like, that stuff gets no closer than that. And he sits, and all those things that hit his boundaries, they turn to flowers and fall to the ground. So he's sitting there surrounded by flowers. This is remarkable. I'm, now I'm 69, I'm just finding out that you could have good boundaries. You know, and and when if somebody says you know you don't communicate very well oh I understand that um, you you s feel I don't communicate very well you know I don't see it like that I've worked on this a lot you know and I may not be the best but I'm not the worst and um, and you know people telling me all these things that are wrong I say yeah I'm aware of those issues I've got resources you know back off. <laughs> With your all of your help and your diagnosis, and you know, you want to straighten me out. Thank you anyway. You know, and you take care of your business. I'll take care of my business. Thank you. Good. So you know, we keep working on things and finding our way along in your life. And I appreciate so much your presence here. Your and you weren't all talking with each other while I talked. Thank you so much. <laughs> Um, and I wish you many blessings and a wonderful evening and um, you know uh, in your life um, coming into your own heart and finding your path in your life with it's from inside you know, receiving the love that's in the air. Thank you blessings. So it's about time so I understand that I'm supposed